who was ordered to utterly wipe these people out and failed to do so himself was killed by an Amalekite. So you leave a part of your flesh, and that's kind of the moral to the story is, if you just leave one part of your flesh, you might think, well, I can manage that. It's not so bad. It's not going to affect anything. I'm strong in that area. The weak area I've got under control, but I'm strong in that area. You know, sometimes liberty will destroy you. The Christian that always talks about the liberties that they have, well, sometimes you'll see that Christian utterly destroyed. Is there any aspect of your flesh that you refuse to put to death? God commands us to put to death the deeds of our flesh and to be alive in Jesus. As Pastor Mark continues his teaching series through the book of 1 Samuel, he'll be explaining how the Amalekites are symbolic of our flesh nature. God commanded Saul to destroy all the Amalekites because they were too dangerous and would ultimately bring destruction to his people. Saul disobeyed the Lord and didn't completely obey his word, and in the end, it was an Amalekite that killed Saul. Whatever sin you may be keeping alive, be careful, because it may be your undoing. Well, let's join Pastor Mark in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 30 with today's edition of Come Alive. Chapter 30, verse 1, it says, Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacked Ziklag, and burned it with fire, and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but they carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, and their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. And then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices, and they wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive. And now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved. Every man for his sons and his daughters, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So Saul was ordered um, by God to completely wipe out, if you remember a while back, he was ordered to wipe out all the Amalekites, all these people that just attacked that we read about. Saul was ordered to do that, but if you remember, Saul did not. And remember, that's where Samuel kind of got onto his case a little bit. And we have seen and have said that the Amalekites represent well, they re- represent the flesh. So what does God say about your flesh? You know, what, what's he say about the flesh? Well, he doesn't ask us regarding the flesh, regarding those fleshly desires that we have and the flesh being like our old way, the BC days before Christ. He doesn't ask us to reform it. He doesn't ask us to manage it, but rather to kill it, to kill it. He, he doesn't ask us to befriend it. He doesn't ask us to treat it kindly and hope that it will change. He says for us to to kill it. And so, you know, it's interesting that that Saul didn't kill all the Amalekites. Remember, he comes back and he left some alive and he brought some of the spoil back. He was supposed to wipe out everything of the Amalekites. And so as we get into 2 Samuel, 
we're going to find out that an Amalekite came to David and said, I was passing through Mount Gilboa, and I saw Saul. And he, he had fallen on his spear, and he had lifted himself up, and he'd asked me to kill him, and I came over and I killed him. And it's just kind of ironic that Saul was supposed to kill the Amalekites, but the Amalekite, one of them, kills him. So Saul, who was ordered to utterly wipe these people out and failed to do so, himself was killed by an Amalekite. So you leave a part of your flesh, and that's kind of the moral to the story is, if you just leave one part of your flesh, you might think, well, I can manage that. It's not so bad. It's not going to affect anything. I'm strong in that area. The weak area I've got under control, but I'm strong in that area. You know, sometimes liberty will destroy you. The Christian that always talks about the liberties that they have, well, sometimes you'll see that Christian utterly destroyed because the flesh desires those things. And I've seen it multiple times recently in this fellowship. I've seen it. I've seen what happens to people who just go out with enough liberty, and then all of a sudden it's a little more and a little more, and then next thing you know, it starts to wipe them out. So here we see that David's stuff is wiped out. All his stuff is taken. And so what happened to your stuff? If we had to ask David a question, if he's up here on stage and we were interviewing, we'd be like, hey, Dave, what happened to your stuff? Where are your wives, and where are the sons and the daughters of your men And where are their wives? Is your house still standing? That's the question I have for David as I read this. And I was like, man, Dave, you know, the backslided, you know, just didn't work out for you. You found peace. And it's amazing how a little bit of that compromise will give you a little bit of peace. Uh, Satan pulls back a little bit and says, hey, cool, man, I'm going to give you a peaceful lifestyle. And, And here you are. And then all of a sudden you come back and David comes back home to Ziklag And everything's been wiped out and taken and gone. And so people who backslide never consider what it will do to people around them. Uh, They really don't. It's selfishness. They never consider what's going to happen to the people around them. They never consider what's going to happen to their families. They think it's going to be, well, hey, it's okay. Hey, I'm back. I know I made a mistake, but I'm thinking I'll just pick up where I left off. And you're wrong if you have that thinking. You don't pick up where you leave off. You don't at all. If you look here, you won't because there needs to be some rescuing. Somebody needs to rescue these people, these things. There needs to be rebuilding. Well, that takes a little while. There needs to be some rebuilding that needs to take place, some restoration, some dedication. And so these are very time-consuming, but God knows this. God knows that he cares for you. And that's what we need to know is that God cares. Even though we've backslidden, even though we've walked away from the Lord sometimes, even though we've made mistakes, even though these things have happened, it is okay in a sense as long as we come back because we read that about David. As long as we come back, God says, I still care for you. I'm not leaving you out there in the cold. Well, when you were over there, yeah, I'm not going to mess with you. I'm going to honor your choice, but I care is what God says. You might say, oh, well, this, does this look like God cares? My house is burned down. My sons and daughters have been kidnapped. My wives are gone. How does that look like God cares? Houses burned, kids gone, wives kidnapped, children. Now you think about it, there's a, a touch of the Lord's poetic justice in all this when we think and compare to David. Now here, here's how it works. Remember when David was out doing that? David had brought this exact calamity on other cities, according to 1 Samuel 27, 8 through 11. He had done this exact same thing, except David didn't leave anybody alive. He wiped them all out. 
He killed the kids, the wives, the dogs, the cats. He killed them. And so David attacked, says David attacked the land and he left neither man nor woman alive. The Malachites were being more merciful than David. I always find it funny when, when the world, when the BC people, the non-believers are more merciful than the Christians, more caring and, and a lot more kind than Christians are. And they tend to have a bigger heart. But God, who is great in mercy, does not just discipline us as much as we deserve. I had a conversation with somebody just the other day about what fair was. They didn't show up for a couple of days for work and wondered why they were moved to a part-time position and said it wasn't fair. I said, well, what's not fair about it? You didn't call in. According to the paper you signed, it says if you do a no-call, no-show one time, you should be fired. So you're right. It's not fair. I should fire you, and, and we'll go ahead and do that now. This person didn't want to be fired, began to beg for his job. I was like, well, don't beg. I don't even want to hear that you'll promise you'll never do it again. Just accept what you're, you're being given. And so we had a little study about mercy and kindness. And so as that person walked away and was like, oh, well, I just don't understand why. What, what have I done? And I was like, well, here's what happened. You were gone for a whole week. And what you've proven to us and all the other guys is we didn't need you because we actually finished faster each and every day without you than we did well, when you were with us. So you're more of a hindrance than a help, but I appreciate you showing me that. So I'm going to allow you to work one day, one day a week. And if you're late that day, well, then you don't get to work anymore. That's just the way it works. He's like, well, that's not fair. And I'm like, well, when you own the company, you make your own rules, and that's what will happen. But see, sometimes God, he's, he's kind of, he's a lot more merciful than we are. Because, again, Think about what God has done in great mercy. He doesn't discipline us as much as we deserve. And as I was studying this, I thought, well, I should really fire him. I really don't need him even that one day, but I'll give him some mercy. So I prayed and I said, Lord, is this fair? Should I do this? And I felt like the answer was like, yeah, keep him one day and see what happens next week. Tomorrow, we'll see. So God, who's great in mercy, doesn't discipline us as much as we deserve. Like a compassionate father, he kind of tempers the stroke of his hand with kindness and love. And so I had to think as I was talking to this employee of mine that, well, you know, if it was my son, Asa, how would I treat him? Probably I would have fired him, but I mean, you know, it's like I would have because he's my son and he, he knows what, he knows more expectations from his own dad. He knows what his dad expects from him each and every day. Where this person's not my son and has only worked for me for a few months. So all had been lost in David's life at this point. He rides into town and he looks and everything he had had been lost. And so David has nothing more to support him when you really think about it because even his friends are standing there and they got rocks in their hands and they're just kind of clicking them together going, dude, what a mess you got us into. They're upset. He left. He ran to hang out with the Philistines and wasn't able to protect his own family, his own people. And so they're ready to stone him. So no one in Israel can help him. When you think about it and you look at it, the Philistines didn't want him. His own people are ready to kill him. And he doesn't even have a wife and, his, and kids and other support around that town for him to even go to somebody and go, Oy vey, can you believe what's going on in my life? So there's no one there. His family's gone. All he has owned is gone. And he's in this real tough spot. And maybe you feel like you've been there. Maybe you feel that you're in this tough spot and everyone around you is gone. Everyone. And that may be. But at least, well, 
You might think, well, you know, luckily, he might have a friend or two in that group, but who knows? But he doesn't. Again, the people spoke of stoning him. Every support he has is gone. And so we have to think, really, every support? Well, not the Lord. God's still there for David. Even though David blew it in a major way, God is still there for him, and that's a good place to be in. It's not a bad place. It's a rough place, but it's not a bad place. As long as the Lord is still there, you think about it, whatever we do, God's still going to be there. Now, you might have to suffer the consequences of your sin, of your actions. You might have to reap what you've sown, but as long as the Lord's still there, it's not a horrible place. David didn't weep only because everything and everyone was lost, because it talks about great weeping. Him and his, his people wept. But he also wept because he knew he was responsible for it. You, you ever been in that spot where you make a bonehead decision and you're just like, oh, that's horrible. I've been in those spots. I've been in those places where I just sit back and I'm like, Lord, I, I've made some bad decisions. I didn't run those through you. I just did it on my own. I kind of figured... You blessed it last time, but I don't know. I don't know and can't see why you didn't bless it this time, but obviously that was my fault. And so I take people with me sometimes for bad decisions. And some, it's hard when you you know you're responsible for it. So no wonder David was greatly distressed. He's about as low as a backslidden state as a person can get. And so David is like the prodigal son who sits in that pig pen, sitting there going, man, you know, there's got to be something better than this. So it took a lot to bring David to this place, but now he's here. And so God is his only strength at this point. David was now completely broken, ready to be filled. And sometimes we think we have to achieve God's blessing or we have to achieve his strength. But David shows us another way. David knows God loves him. And so this is one of the coolest things that I love about this story here. Because if you look, it says, so David and his men came to the city. I'm sorry, verse 4. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and they wept until they had no more power to weep. I mean, they would just, they, have you ever been there where you've just cried and you just dried your tears out? And you're done. You're just like, man, I have no power to weep. Verse 5 says, and David's two, it talks about his two wives being gone, taken captive. Verse 6, now David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people were grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. And then the cool thing about it is, but David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God, his God. So this was strength for recognition, strength for brokenness, strength for repentance. He he has strength for determination to win back what the enemy has stolen. And that should be something for us to consider in our lives is that sometimes the enemy has stolen something and we need to redeem the time. I was having a conversation with a young man the other day, and, and we were talking, and, and he, I said, well, you know, you, you've only been in this thing for a few months. For you to, to be ready to move on to this next step, I mean, ask yourself, are you ready? He's like, no, I'm not ready. And so why do you want to move on? You're not ready to take on that step yet. Now, why don't you redeem the time from your backslidden state and, and really work on coming to the Lord and just focusing all your attention, all your strength on the Lord, having Devo times. You're a single young man right now, so there's not, you've got nothing but time. You spend how many hours at work a week? And he's like, just 40. I was like, all right, that's good. And then in your ride to work, in your ride home, spend some time in prayer. In the morning before work, spend some time in the Word. When you get home, if you need to watch the news or whatever, you're fit, do an hour of TV. 
But then get back into the Word and then just go to bed and sleep on what you've read and pray about what you've read. It's a great time to redeem and grow. And so as he's been doing that, he told me that just yesterday that, man, it's been working real well. That it's been going well. He feels like he's, he's getting more confident and able to speak about God and talk about God in more everyday situations than he was before. So this is the same strength David has, the same strength that would raise Jesus from the dead. The same strength. So he takes a step forward and he says, it isn't bad. God's on my side. I truly repent. And God's nature says he will bless. If we truly repent, God's nature says I'll bless. If you repent, I will bless. So there's a time for tears and emotion. But man, you know, there are some people that they stay in mourning for a very long time. And it's like, all right, that's cool. Get out of it. Snap out of it. There's a time to move forward. It's stop. It's time to move into action. And so it's good to repent. If you're taking notes, step one would be repent. And step number two would be, well, to do something about it. You know, to repent and feel sad for your sins is great, but staying all teary-eyed really doesn't help after a while. It's time to move forward. So this is the fruit of what you've sown by not doing what you should have done. But Dave, isn't it too late? It's not. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, Then David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, Please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. Isn't that cool that when you notice this and you look at this, God's mercy, even after a time of backsliding, God says, I still care. I still care. He doesn't just, you know, he does so by just being there. So, you know, if we repent, then we know that God will be there. That would be number two if you're taking notes. Number one would be repent. Number two would be to, that God would be there. God's going to be there. David was able to seek God, and God says, here I am, David. Here I am. You notice with me, he goes to the priest, he gets the ephod, and he inquires of the Lord, and who answers? The Lord. Not someone else, but the Lord answers and says, hey, pursue, go take it, and I'll give you back all your stuff. So God first gave David something to do. That was pursue. And then God gave David a promise. In the doing, you shall surely overtake and without fail recover all. So there's the pursuit and then the promise and when God gives us something to do, he also gives us a promise in the doing. You ever notice that? Well, when you look at the things that God tells people to do, there's always a promise. And you'd be like, well, he doesn't say he promises. Well, does God lie? He doesn't need to go, hey, hey, Mark, I swear to myself, I'm going to do that. God doesn't need to do that. When he speaks, it's the truth. When he says, I'm going to do something, he's going to do it. And so he doesn't joke around. You know, Ace has gotten into the point where he'll tell me something, and I'm like, seriously? Some guy walked into the garage and stole my bicycle, and I'll run out there and look, and I'm like, dude, it's right here. And he'll look at me and be like, dude, I was just joking. I'm like, dude. You know, and I mean, he's looking at me all serious, and I'm like, you got to cut that out. You got to stop that. It freaks me out when you do it. You're too little. Wait till you're bigger because you don't know how to do body language and the expressions of a joke yet. You know, he's all like real serious looking, and, and I was just like, man, dude. See, God doesn't do that. He doesn't go, hey, Mark, I was just kidding on that one. I was just joking. When you repented and I said I was going to let you into heaven, 
It was a joke. I'm sorry you got here and you had to find out then. I, I kind of forgot to tell you 20 years ago. No, he doesn't joke around. So God first gave David something to do, and then he gives him a promise so he can do it. He also gives us a promise in that same doing. You and I get those same promises. Look at verse 9. It says, So David went, and he and 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued he and 400. So 200 men stay behind. They're probably tired. They're probably worn out. They're probably like, man, you know, we, emotionally we're drained. I don't think we can fight, so we're going to kick back. We'll stay here. And so 400 guys take off to go reclaim stuff. So the 400 men who were with him and came to the brook Besor, where those who stayed were left behind, verse 10. But David pursued he and 400 men, for 200 stayed behind, who were so weary that they could not cross the brook Besor. And then they found an Egyptian in the field. Stop right there. Remember... Um, he had lost support from his men. Remember David had lost support from his men, and now all of a sudden 400 are willing to go, 200 are staying back because they're weary is what it says. Well, now he gains support from them. And, and the point of this is, you know, these guys probably, they're like, hey, Dave, we'll follow you. Why'd they follow him in the first place? Well, they were some, you know, evil, wicked dudes. They owed money. They were in debt. Saul was probably after them for whatever reason because they didn't produce enough or give enough. And so he's, he's with these guys. And now, before, they were wanting to kill him. Dave, look what you've done. You know, you, the whole town's trashed because we left. And my family's gone with the Amalekites. Doesn't look like they went willingly. And, and we want to kill you. But now, they're willing to support him. Why? Well, because of verse 6. David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. He had gone back to God. It's amazing what happened when we do that. So God is like, hey, yeah, we're going to support you in the battle. We've seen you talking to God. We've seen that God is for you. So we do want to support you in this battle. So David went, he and the 600 men who were with him. It implies and that David had said, hey, guys, I, I, I'm going. I'm going because I got a promise. I got a bank note. I got God's signature on this adventure, on this battle. And I'm going to believe it no matter what. And whether you go, it doesn't matter if you go with me or not, I'm going to go by myself. Now that's the David that I know from before when Goliath and the Philistine army were out there. Who is this guy sitting here screaming? And so he goes down into battle. So this is David. Because God is on my side, he says, and I have to beat all the Malachites. All by myself, I'm going to do it. Because God promised it. The people we meet in the book of 1 Samuel are quite the characters. We meet a woman who gave her only child to God and a boy who heard and answered the call of the Lord. We also find a frightened king and a brave shepherd boy, both of whom would lead the people of Israel. Through each of these people and circumstances, we discover God's hand at work in powerful ways. We are so glad you tuned in today to Come Alive. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Google Play or iTunes to keep up to date with the latest from Come Alive and the church behind it. Calvary Chapel Katy is led by Pastor Mark Martinez and a staff of Jesus-loving, friendly people who do all we can to spread the good news of the gospel to all who walk through our doors. If you're in the Katy area, Tracy has an invitation for you. We'd absolutely love to have you join us here at Calvary Chapel Katy for our Sunday morning service. 
We're now meeting at Wood Creek Elementary School, located at 1155 Wood Creek Bend Lane. It's exciting to be in a new space, and we hope you're able to come worship the Savior and study the Bible with us, filling our new home with praise and prayer. Give us a call for more information and directions, and we look forward to seeing you soon. Our phone number is 281-391-5503. That's 281-391-5503. Thanks for listening today to Come Alive.